and the thing is, you don't need an electric kettle. You don't need a new toothbrush. No, no, exactly. But there's a lot of things in our lives that you don't need Zoom. I mean, you don't need a podcast. A lot of things we don't need. <laughs> well, no, don't, don't say <laughs> oh, that. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Everybody needs one more podcast, and it's ours. <laughs> Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robert Hodge. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest this episode is Dr. Samuel West, a licensed psychologist with a PhD in organizational psychology and founder of the Museum of Failure. The Museum of Failure is a traveling collection of failed products and services from around the world. It serves as a fascinating learning experience, which provides unique insight into the risky business of innovation. We discuss how innovation and progress require an acceptance of failure, and how being open to failure and the lessons it teaches us can inspire us to take more meaningful risks. We explore the fear of failure both on an organizational scale and the personal level. Now there's an increasing interest in being more vulnerable and having productive conversations on this topic. And finally, we dive into how to measure creativity and the difference between good and bad failure. Enjoy. We are happy to have Dr. Samuel West with us, founder of the Museum of Failure. Welcome to the show, Samuel. Thank you very much. Welcome. I've really been looking forward to this interview because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a little bit different than our guests, which are often artists or engineers or scientists. But you're an organizational psychologist and founder of this museum. And when I first came across the idea of the Museum of Failure, where I saw you online, I kind of got it right away in terms of some of my own background. I had worked in philanthropy and we always talk about our successes. Everybody loves to promote their successes. And we even had those conversations, wow, we should really promote our failures. And even, even when that got done, let's put out the 10 worst grants we ever gave. It was still kind of a, you know, kind of like when you get to ask that interview question, you know, what's your biggest weakness? And, you know, sometimes I work too hard or sometimes I care too much. <laughs> so, uh, so before we jump into your project and passion, do you have a favorite personal failure if you'd like to share or just a favorite failure in general? Maybe if it doesn't, doesn't have to be personal, it could also be from the, the show, but a real favorite. I don't know if we want the entire podcast to be about my failures because we could do like four <laughs> podcasts about it. But, <laughs> but I mean, I think one of the funnier failures and re- related to the Museum of Failure is I, I remember when I got the idea for the, for the Museum of Failure and I, I immediately recognized that, you know, realized that this is an awesome idea. And I was so happy with myself. I was just thrilled, you know. You, you know, when you get that feeling, like, you know, you're onto something. And I was so excited. So I went down. I was traveling at the time. And I went down to the, a bar or whatever, wherever, the nearest place where I could buy a beer. Had a beer and just, like, relishing in that wonderful feeling of knowing that this is going to be good. And uh, like I often do, I, I, when I have an idea, I, I go ahead and buy the domain, just sort of to remind myself what what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I did that and I was on my on my phone at the time. So I bought the domain and I was just thrilled that I could buy museumoffailure.com. 
this is 2016. I was like, wow, it's still mm -hmm. available. That's, that's amazing. I got it. And I was like, oh, this is great. Didn't think of it until I got the invoice or looked at the invoice. Um, and it said, congratulations to museumoffailure.com. So I, I'd, mis <laughs> I'd misspelled the word museum. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was hilarious that that my first, yeah, that I'm the only museum curator that can't spell the word museum. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's, there's, there are more serious failures, but that one is funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, what do you let's tell us about that inspiration and the the journey of creating this and and what the Museum of Failure is. I'll I'll take what it is first. It's a touring exhibition, so there's not a permanent site for Museum of Failure. I guess the website is the permanent site, but um it's a collection of failed innovations. So an innovation is something that's new and novel um and so in such, it's, it can't be just a production failure. It has to be something where some, a, a person or a, a company is pushing the boundaries and trying something new. Uh, and then it has to be a failure in some regard. And it has to be somewhat interesting. Those are the criteria uh, to be in the museum. And we have stuff, you know, from, from medical field. We have, you know, cars, foods, toys, a whole bunch of tech stuff. And the whole point of it is to sort of drive home the point that we need to appreciate failure as a necessary aspect and element of, of progress. Anyway, so that's, that's the whole spiel. That's the summary of what Museum of Failure is. And it tours around the world. So right now it's open in Calgary in Canada. And sort of what led up to founding or starting the museum was I, I was doing research, I was doing a PhD in organizational science focused on innovation and how, how companies can boost their um, our ability to both explore and experiment and boost, basically boost innovation. And doing that research and working uh, as a consultant on the side, it became really clear that there's a lot of methods out there for innovation. There's a lot of gurus out there on, on innovation for sure. But at the end of the day, people are still afraid of making mistakes. So uh, people are afraid of failing, whether they're individual inventors in their garage uh, inventing for something, you know, for, for a purpose that will be evaluated soon or in particularly in bigger organizations, people are afraid. And that's an obstacle for innovation. And, and, and I was playing with ideas of how can I communicate how important failure is. And I wasn't having much, much success. I was considering writing a book. Should I do some, you know, write some articles in peer-reviewed papers? What should I do with this? And um, and then I had a eureka moment at a museum and I thought, hey, if these people can open a museum, so can I. And that's where it came from. Great. So you said failure is a necessary part of innovation. What is that relationship? Because we use the word failure. You know, it means something, as you said, kind of a very emotional with people. But we were trying to, these days in business, swapping out that word with experiments or pivoting, et cetera. Mm. How, how is iterations? Innovation? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. uh, from the business point of view, how to like uh, support uh, innovation and the, uh, and progress. I'd love to learn those techniques. So maybe uh, after this podcast, how does, um, <laughs> how does innovation kind of lead? Um, I mean, how does failure lead into innovation? Uh, it's, it's, it's quite fat. Well, I think it's fascinating how innovation 
per se, because you're testing something new, because you're actually creating a new product, a new service, you're, you're creating something that wasn't there before. And it can also be a, a new method, a new ideology. It's not just physical uh, items. And the same thing goes for creativity. If you look at the art part of, of art elements, that when you're being creative, you're by definition, it's novel, it's new. And when you do that, there's a high risk for failure. So if you're just doing the same thing as you've done before and you have you know, good processes for it and uh, good quality control, et cetera, then you're not really pushing the boundary. You're just doing more of what already works. So innovation, per definition, there is something in there that's risky. So you are test, you're pushing the boundaries. And as such, at least in, 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 in the corporate world, up to 90% of all innovation projects, they fail. That's a huge number. And if, you, and if you think from an artist's point of view, a lot of their work never makes it anywhere because it just doesn't cut it. <laughs> so where am I going with this? You need to accept those trials, those attempts, or as you would say, failures, uh, before you can have any kind of success. That's one relationship that's very strong i think i mean there's all kinds of quotes out there one is by jeff bezos uh by who really understands the whole uh aspect of taking risks and accepting failure uh where it's like failure and success are inseparable like they're 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 both part of the same dynamic you can't separate it and and this is something that is really frustrating for organizations that they really want to be innovative, but they don't want to take, they don't want to fail. They want to have the good part without the bad part. And that just doesn't happen. And that the fear of failure that you mentioned in there, you said in, in larger organizations, but I think it's, uh, and you're a, uh, I think you said you're an organizational psychologist by training, mm. correct? Right. So, I mean, there's a, a huge psychology part, whether it's the organization or the individual that, um, that this brings up similar to the artist who never shares their work or, or keeps it very safe, uh, which is uh, when I you know, first proposed this, someone said, you know, it sounds like it's more kind of corporate or organizational focus, but I think it's very similar kind of issue playing it a little too safe, uh, which can be either dangerous or lead to uh, its own kind of failure in a way. So how, how do people, are there, methods to unlearning that fear or, uh, or changing that culture that you've kind of come across or, or soar in terms of uh, your work? Good question. I mean, the, there's no magic sort of 10-step plan for, for overcoming it. But one, one thing that's happened in the past, I don't know if it's past five years or 10 years, but it's, it's definitely a recent development where uh, people are becoming more open to talking about failure and evaluating it and, and having a discussion about it without pointing out scapegoats or finding blame somewhere um, and, and actually just discussing it as you would discuss any other phenomenon. Uh, and there's initiatives. I mean, Museum of Failure is a small, small part of that sort of movement, if you would call it that. Uh, there's, for example, fuck-up nights. Have you heard of those? Mm -mm. <laughs> nope. So, no, fuck up. I've, had a, I've a, had a few, but haven't uh, <laughs> <laughs> we all? Uh, the fuck up nights is a brilliant format. It's, I mean, like TED Talks and Pecha Kucha, the sort of formatted uh, uh, talk formats. 
fuck up nights is is one of those where uh, they get people together. It's it came from sort of the entrepreneur marketing people where they would organize evenings where speakers would get up on stage and they got I can't remember if it's six minutes or five or ten whatever a short short time slot to within a certain format to to share their fuck ups and do so quite with with some vulnerability as well in front of their peers. And it's grown to a huge movement. There's fuck up nights all over the world uh, where people talk about their, their, their failures. That's one part of that. Another, there's a lot of books about it. Uh, I remember I had a book deal with a big prestigious publisher. And this is like three years ago, four years ago. And I was so busy at the times so I couldn't write the damn book. Um, but I had the deal. Everything was set to go. It took me too long to, to, to get the book, you know, to get a synopsis ready and get, get working on it. And by the time I, I got it done and sent it into the publisher, uh, he told me like, you know, there's just too many books about failure. <laughs> so, so they're like, we're not going to publish it. And I'm like, dang it. You know, I mean, it's good, but it's bad for me. <laughs> Maybe I should add that to one of my fuck up failures. <laughs> but I mean, the, that there is there is interest in destigmatizing failure for sure, mm. and it's not just from the corporate world. It's 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 from from there's there's I don't know if it's especially big in the UK, but there is a great number of podcasts and shows about people sharing their person like relationship failures mm. and you know failures as a parent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And I think those having those kinds of discussions. And people being willing to share those stories and, and just for others to, for enjoyment, entertainment, but all mainly to learn from. I think that's what the biggest change in sort of trying to decrease that ne ne negative sort of stamp or negative uh, view of failure. Sorry, I'm, I'm long-winded here, but I do feel I have to right now sort of go in and say there's, diff there's a difference between good failure and bad failure. Mm. Bad failure is failure where it's predictable and it's preventable. It's failure where it could have been uh, um, avoided due to sloppiness or incompetence. Those kinds of, you know, those kinds of failure, not following protocol and routine, those kinds of failures, I'm not celebrating those. That's bad failure. But good failure is the type of failure where people purposely test test their boundaries and push it forward. Um, so good failure is done for innovation or good failure is done in an artistic sense to, to, to increase the creativity, take a risk there. Mm -hmm. Bad failure is not delivering your artwork on time when you had a contract. I mean, there, you know what I mean? Like, yes. like that failure is not cool and I, it should right. never be seller. It's just stupid and it should still, it should be punished, you know? Um, <laughs> And you should be embarrassed about it. But the failure of creating something that's innovation or art artistically and, and taking a risk and being negatively evaluated, evaluated for that, that's the good kind of thing. So there's a distinction there. That's great. There's that expression, failure of imagination, which is uh, <laughs> its own failure, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Can you give us an example or two from the actual exhibit for the audience of a product or two that you... You know, they would know um, or has an interesting take to kind of uh, to show this, uh, how the museum works. 
Um, it might not be the sexiest or the most interesting example, but I think it illustrates what the Museum of Failure is about quite well. I got two examples if I can. Um, one is the Segway. Do you remember that? Mm. Yeah. What, yes. 2001, 2002, somewhere there? Okay, it was going to revolutionize personal transport. Yeah. It would, the expectations were sky high. I mean, this, it, it, let's face it, it's a, it's a very sexy and very exciting uh, piece of technology. Definitely. You can't, you can't deny that. And the expectations were so high. They, um, the, the Segway was supposed to revolutionize the way people transport themselves. Um, it was supposed to be the, the, the best-selling product of the, the decade. It was supposed to be to the car what the car was to the horse and buggy. Um, do I have to get, oh, oh, it's the Segway will be bigger than the internet. Yes. <laughs> now, so these, these were real. These were not mm-hmm. just people off the street. These were hot shots, investors and, you know, futurists that were saying these kind of things. So the expectations were real and they were enormous. Turned out, I mean, it, it, the Segway failed to meet any of those expectations uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, it was expensive. It was somewhat dangerous. And you look stupid when you ride it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, the, and, it, and it belongs in the Museum of Failure because it was a failure on multiple levels, there, mm. judging from the expectations. And, and it fits with the definition of failure that, that I like to use, uh, which is from the, obviously from the organizational side, but failure is a, is a deviance from expected or desired outcomes, results. So when things don't go the way you want them, when you create a new product, you want it to be commercially successful, you know? But it's nuanced. So the, the, the segue isn't always bad. I mean, it's, it was a horribly a, a bad economic financial you know, failure. And we can laugh at it. But I mean, the segue has led to a lot of different interesting and, and some of them quite successful ways of transfer. I mean, we, we see these um, electric scooters all over town. I, I, I won't say that they're a direct descendant of the Segway, but the Segway is definitely out there first, you know? Yes, yes. And it deserves both, you know, to, it, it's a failure, but it also deserves respect that they actually did something completely new, developed completely new technology, managed to launch it, get, get some attention, get some money and investors. And as such, it was a successful innovation per se, but it didn't make it. So it belongs in the news of a failure. Yeah, I definitely consider that one of the, when I saw the segue at the museum, uh, the good failure, because as you said, uh, yeah. its iteration or its its concept failed, but we have now battery technology and gyroscope technology, like in, in exactly. kind of very cheap commercial products. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it deserves a lot of respect for that. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people that visit the museum, they can understand that. Yeah, at first you laugh at it a little bit and go, ha ha, that's so dumb. Why didn't they think of that? It's, it's easy 20 years later, you know? <laughs> um, so, but um, at the same time to, to sort of, uh, to appreciate that they, somebody needed to be the first ones to, to take that risk. Yes. And you said there was another one that uh, came to mind. Yeah, another one. It's a stupid, it's a stupid one. I mean. All right. <laughs> We go from a, the, the, the famous segue to a stupid one, but um, I don't know, oh, maybe not. Maybe it's not that stupid, but uh, I got a donation fairly recently, uh, um, a Uno, Uno brush. It's also called the Ama brush, a different company making the same thing. Never heard of it? No. No? Well, probably that's not so strange because it totally failed 
commercially. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, one of them was a Kickstarter project. Um, it was a revolutionary new toothbrush. So you know, somebody is thinking, hey, toothbrushes haven't changed. You no, know, it was regular tooth, manual toothbrush, and then you have the electric toothbrush. Even no matter how many sonic waves and ultra vibrations you put in there, it's still an electric toothbrush, right? Yeah. So they developed a new toothbrush, and I, it's hard to explain without showing it, but it's a, imagine a mouthpiece, right? Like you'd put in to protect your mouth. Right. In the mouthpiece, there's a bunch of silicon sort of brush, uh, like little, I don't know, bristle, like what? Uh-huh, like the, the toothbrush bristles. Yeah, 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 inside of that. So it's like, yeah, anyway, so you stick it in your mouth. You push to put some, some very liquid toothpaste in there, and you stick the whole thing in your mouth like this, right? Like stick it in there with a, with a handle, and then you turn it on for 10 seconds, and it promises to clean your mouth, all your teeth, simultaneously in 10 seconds. That's pretty amazing, ah. you know? Who likes to brush their teeth? Great, 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 great. And they totally change. It doesn't look like a toothbrush. It doesn't work like a toothbrush. Nothing. But it's a, it's a totally new, innovative toothbrush. Uh, and uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I was going why, why did it fail? It doesn't it, clean your teeth. It doesn't clean your teeth. That's, a, yeah. that's the answer. <laughs> uh, job one. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and, and when I got this donation, I, I'd read about it and thought it was like, oh, that's kind of funny. And I, I didn't think much of it. But when I got it, I held it in my hand. And I was thinking like, you know, and there were several. There's not just one. There's several companies, uh, some in Europe and some in the United States, that all developed a similar looking thing. Um, and they've all failed. And, and, I, and I thought about it, you know, this thing is funny. It, it's stupid when you stick, I tried it. It's absolutely impossible. Um, but I was thinking, you know, somebody is like, they, they, des they deserve credit, you know? They took, they took something that hasn't changed and they're like, let's change it. Let's see if we can improve on it. They took a risk. Unfortunately, they also took a lot of investors' money to do it. That's the bad part. And they developed it and they launched it and it didn't work out. And I'm absolutely convinced that in, I don't know if it's going to take five years or 10 years, some big, you know, manufacturer, consumer product, you know, Gillette or Oral-B or something, they're going to launch a third generation toothpaste and it will work, you know? Uh, it, the, what you said there was interesting that they, they do deserve credit because there, there is that mindset that, you know, you look at things and like, this is fine. Why do I need anything different? I, I'll give you a great example. My mom was a, a depression era generation, you know, American through the depression, the war, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, appliances didn't really care for the, you know, had things in the kitchen that she probably had got when she got married yeah, and just didn't yeah. need stuff. So, you know, the kind of parent who has, you know, everything they need, what do you really buy them? I uh, knew had to boil water to for tea or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I bought her an electric kettle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and initially she was like, why do I need an electric kettle? I just put a pot on, I put water in. I, she loved that. It was like the best <laughs> gift I ever gave her <laughs> was the electric kettle. It was like this innovation. All of a sudden you could boil water in a new way. <laughs> so, so th that mindset of looking at something and being like, how could I improve on that? We've been probably boiling water for the yeah. same way for many years. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is like, you, you don't need an electric kettle. You, you don't need a new toothbrush. No, no. no exactly. um, but there's a lot of things in our lives that, you don't need Zoom. 
Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's we all, don't yeah. need a podcast. That's right. a lot of things we don't need. <laughs> well, no, don't, don't say <laughs> oh, that. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Everybody needs one more podcast, and it's ours. <laughs> right. We, we had two examples, a segue that led to future success, a Uno brush that might lead to future success in a third generation. And we talked about how we can feel better around failure, kind of make it more normalized. How can we learn from failures or maybe the opposite? When do we know to stop working on something that's like, this is irredeemable? Are there ways like to take that next step, even as an organization or as, or as a person to like move on from today's kind of failure, like this experiment to then to some future success? Yeah, that's a hot topic in sort of corporate innovation right now, how, how to know when to kill projects. So, and most, most companies, and there's different cultures here, depending on where in the world you are, but many sort of conservative countries and sort of cultures, the, the company culture is also that, that when you've started something, you, you finish it, right? So, and that means in innovation, uh, a lot of money being pumped into stupid, already doomed projects. So one thing that companies have to do is become much better at killing projects that aren't going anywhere. Uh, but that doesn't happen because they're not willing to have a discussion about failure. So instead of saying project X failed and we're pulling all the people off of it, killing it uh, and giving the managers there and the, the, the engineers and the people working their new, new job and saying, great, you learned a lot from that, you know, that fuck up. <laughs> um, let's go on and move. Let's, let's move forward. Uh, they would, they, no one wants to talk about it and admit that things have gone wrong. So they just keep putting money into it. That doesn't take, you don't have to be a, a super genius to realize that that's not a very good strategy. Um, so one thing is to learn and be better at killing projects. My favorite is from uh, uh, Google X uh, Moonshot. I don't know what they're called now. They change names all the time. But it's like their sort of innovation lab or whatever you call it, hub. I, I saw a TED talk with the CEO. They're explaining their, their system where they basically, if you have an idea, you get some money. Like, and you get resources, you get some engineers, you get some people, project managers, you, you know, go for it, run with it. And then you get, a you get a certain budget and then you have a meeting a month or two later where you have to come to the meeting and you have to defend your project. And the whole meeting is about killing your project. So the default is it's going to die. Like, and you have to defend it, why it shouldn't die. And if you... You know, if you can't defend it, the project's terminated and people go and do other things. But if you can defend it, then you get more money and more, you know, you get more resources and more time. And then again, you're invited back to the that room where you have to defend your project or it gets killed. And I love that. I love that approach where, yeah, no, we just assume it's not going to work. <laughs> so um, it's up to you to prove otherwise. And if you can, you get more money. Yeah, I, I, I know another story from that or another practice from uh, Google X where they, um, they people go up and say, we've killed our project because X, Y, and Z, and then it's celebrated, it's an applause, like you killed it for the right reason, uh, you know. Exactly. It's interesting because you, you mentioned, I think 90% of innovation projects fail, so you would think the default would be to expect them to fail. Yeah, yeah. But maybe as a, like a human characteristic is where optimistic and overconfident in our abilities yeah. to do things. So uh, that, that's just so part of our DNA in, in, in many cultures. It truly is. 
we've talked a lot about corporate and, uh, and, and business innovation. We, and we are the artist engineer mindset. Maybe we'll spend a, a couple minutes on that. As you pointed out, this really is about innovation, creativity, imagination. That's what our interest is, which is why we, we lump them together. And there are many similarities, as Tony and I have found, but also there are places they diverge. And when you think of the failure in both those kind of tracks, how do you see that, that convergence and divergence? There's different ways to measure creativity. Um, there's sort of the, the, the easy way just to have people do word association tests or have them draw something. And then, you know, it's, 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 it's judged upon us by, you know, a certain manual or a set way of, of, of looking at things. Those are kind of, they're really bad tests. They don't quite, they don't capture what creativity is. And the, the, the Rolls Royce, like the, the top dog of creativity tests is called the consensual assessment technique. Now, and by describing how this works, I'm also defining creativity. <laughs> so it works. If I was going to test your creativity, for example, then I would take, I would ask you, both of you, to write a, a poem. Or, I don't know, if you're engineer nerds, I would say, solve this you know, difficult me- mechanical or elect- electric ta- you know, problem. And, you know, a fairly, fairly quick one. You, you can do it in 10, 15 minutes. And then I would take your solution or your poem, the product, the, the results of your creativity. I would take it and I would ask seven to nine people. They can be experts in the field. They can be people who are somewhat, somewhat knowledgeable, but don't have to be experts. Uh, and I would ask them to rate the creativity. Here, here's Tony's uh, task. Here's his results. Rate it one to seven, and then I would check like what's the average of to- what, what's the average rating for Tony's uh, results, and that will be your creativity score, because creativity is really difficult to define, but just like porn, we how do you define porn? You can't, but you know it when you see it. Hmm? So same thing about creativity; it's difficult to define, but you know it when you see it. And so this consensual assessment technique uses that to measure creativity. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful test. And it also really tells us more about what creativity is. Creativity isn't anything per se. It's always a social context. It's always evaluated. If you, if you as an artist, Bill, you do something that's fantastic, but nobody sees it. And you nobody, is it creative? You don't know. It's not mm-hmm. because it, mm-hmm. it's just you doing something, you know, <laughs> but it becomes creative when it's in a social content, when it's evaluated by other people. And then you're like, oh, this is good stuff. Then it becomes okay. So, so are you with me on this? Like, yes, creativity is a social, it's a social construct. And so is innovation. Um, and as such, when we do something that's new, we do something that's creative, it's, we are always vulnerable when we get evaluated for that, whether it be the art critic or our family members or somebody buying the art or whatever, whoever evaluates it. Um, and that's where the fear is, the fear of being negatively judged for something. So 
in that regard, I can't see a whole lot of difference between the engineer or the artist using their creativity, although they're completely different. Um, you still get a value for it. And that's the most painful thing when somebody says that something you've done, something you worked on and, you know, engaged in just, <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you're, you're sharing a part of yourself. And I wonder about how the toothbrush people who came up with that idea and the artists who came up with a piece of abstract art or something, uh, if they, if they deal with that or feel different about it, they're sharing more or less of themselves you know, if you fail financially, economically, it's the same as someone saying, you know, boy, that painting sucks, you know. So I don't know. It, it's, it, you know, or am, I just, or am I just stereotyping artists as being sensitive? <laughs> well, I, 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 would, I would almost argue I've worked with a lot of artists. And I would almost argue that there's a greater acceptance. At least this is my little pigeonhole perspective where like anybody who's worked in 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 the arts for a while knows that you're gonna get rejected mm. you're going, and it's kind of built in like the author who gets their manuscript rejected the screenwriter the the painter etc musician not going anywhere there it's sort of kind of more they I, I don't know it just feels like they're better at accepting it at least as a group, than in the corporate world where you're expected to always deliver. That's quite interesting. Maybe almost a, a built-in resilience from their backgrounds yeah, and coming yeah. through all that already. Yeah. I have no data. This is just, just my guess. I like it. That's what's good about art. You can just guess. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely that's right about the expectation, especially in business. And uh, we feel that if you project manage something properly, if you analyze something properly, you're guaranteed success. It's, it's a false expectation. Mm. Um, and I don't think like, for example, a musician says every song I'm writing is going to be a number one hit. I've been uh, noodling over this failure in a little bit. I always thought that uh, in another area, third area, science, scientific method builds failure into, yeah. as, Tom, as Thomas Edison said, I've learned 99 things that don't work uh, and one thing that will work. I don't know if you can comment on that as well. I, I've, I always said that's a reason why like, we've had such scientific advancement just because of that expectation set into the scientific method. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is, you've opened Pandora's box here because um, this is a huge problem in the sciences, not just the natural sciences, oh. but definitely in the social sciences where um, the scientific method is perfect. Like you, you do experiments, you, you observe the data, you create theories. It's, 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 a, it's wonderful. The problem is in, in, in this publish or perish mm. uh, uh, mentality, this, this, this um, climate where researchers have to fight for funding, they have to publish. There's this enormous problem with the positive uh, bias in publishing. So the articles that come out are articles, studies, that show positive results that are not failures. So for every, every study you see that we found something that cures Alzheimer, there's a thousand that didn't show anything and they don't get published. Mm. And this is a huge problem and it's a huge obstacle to science. Everybody's aware of it and nobody does anything about it. So it's, 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 it's really sad that even, even there, uh, we have a problem with failure. 
or accepting failure and talking about it. Yeah, it's it's moving more towards the corporate idea of like uh, again, like your scientific experiment. If you do it well, can lead to success instead of the let's say the creative or artistic mindset where we're exp- we're playing with a lot of different ideas um, and, and happy with that. Yeah, it's that. What I'm talking about primarily is the positive uh, bias for publishing um, that you only get real. That's how you measure the, uh, the the worth or the value of a researcher is how much they publish. And only those who can show that they actually get results get published. So it means that if you're actually onto something that is way out there, is it is a moonshot, you know, uh, you a you're not going to get money for it and you won't get published because most of your research results are going to be negative. It's sad and it's, it's scary and it's fascinating. Yeah. Sorry to sorry to bring up this bad part, but you asked. Yeah, for that's, it. That's, that, that Tony. It was it wasn't your not your fault. Totally Tony's fault. No. I didn't know. I, I, <laughs> Thanks I a lot, the, Tony. Failed the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a positive note there, though. I I if I ever get any time and I ever get any money, hint hint, then I would love to start a journal, the the Museum of Failure Journal of statistically insignificant results i like it (laughs) you should i hope you do get that well do you have anything uh final uh in closing tony i think the journal of statistically insignificant results is the best way to end (laughs) well i i look forward to subscribing to it and i am sure this uh episode is not going to be a failure because it was a terrific conversation so thank you so much. It met all my expectations, been as enjoyable as I thought it'd be. So uh, thank you, Samuel. Thank you, guys. Good questions. Nice chat. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoy the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people and also hit the subscribe button.